0: Good morning. My name is Ryan McCullough, and I bring you greetings from the Hudson Valley region of the New York City Church. I'm so excited to be able to share with you this morning in the Jesus Said series. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, or you can follow along with the scriptures that will be posted on the video. About two years ago, for my wife Lauren's birthday, I was able to get two tickets in the very back of the theater to the Broadway show. Hamilton. Now, Hamilton tells the story of the brilliant rise and dramatic fall of Alexander Hamilton, one of the founders of the United States. And it's been a worldwide sensation since it opened on Broadway in 2015. This was a few years later now, but it was still incredibly difficult to get tickets. And when we got there that night, the theater was packed. As the show unfolded, The the audience was clearly enthralled to see Hamilton coming to New York, assisting George Washington in the Revolutionary War, defending the new U.S. Constitution. But we were all clearly hurting with him, as after accomplishing so much, he then proceeded to destroy his family and his future. Cheating on his wife, publicly humiliating her, to save his own reputation, and then counseling his 19-year-old son behind his wife's back in a duel that would cost his son his life. But the most powerful moment in the show was actually not about anything that Hamilton himself did. Instead, the audience was stunned into silence as they watched Eliza Hamilton, Alexander's wife, after enduring blow after blow from a husband that was as flawed as he was brilliant, and who has torn apart her entire life, her marriage, her reputation, and ultimately also her son. She and her now estranged husband move uptown to Harlem, where they try to pick up the pieces of their life, to try to do what the show calls the unimaginable. Now the show describes them standing in their garden, Alexander by Eliza's side. And in an act of incomprehensible grace, she reaches out and takes his hand. The actor's saying, forgiveness, can you imagine? Forgiveness, can you imagine? And in that moment, the hardened New York audience was in tears, acknowledging the power of love to change the human heart. And the audience that night knew something. And I think that the the show has been so successful all over the world because deep in our hearts, all of us know the same thing. That when one person extends love to another who hasn't earned it, who doesn't deserve it, simply out of kindness to another soul. That there is in that act the heart and the power of God. When Jesus came to the earth, he came to introduce people to the God who loves with that kind of love. In Matthew 7, Jesus describes God as delighted to give to us, not based on what we deserve, but based on his own kindness and grace. And we'll start in verse nine. Jesus says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus came to show the world that God is the wife who has been continually neglected and scorned by a world that Jesus describes here as evil. And when we look around the world today, how could we really argue with him? But Jesus says that in spite of this, God gladly gives, extending him, extending himself to meet our needs. But then Jesus turns to his followers he says, if this is who God is, what does that mean for those of us who want to live in his kingdom? And this is our main text today. We'll pick it up in verse 12. Jesus says that God gladly gives to an evil world purely out of his grace. Therefore, you who want to live in his kingdom, how then should you treat the world? Verse 12, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus says that you can sum up the entirety of the law and the prophets. So the entirety of God's instructions for how people were to conduct themselves in a covenant relationship with him in a single command. Do for others what you would want them to do for you. So what is our obligation to the world as citizens of God's kingdom? Jesus says it's actually very simple, but when we understand what he's saying, it's actually incredibly challenging. Everywhere we go, with everyone we meet, we have to ask one simple question. If I were in their shoes, what would I want from me? If I were in their shoes, what would I want from me? Now, you've probably heard People say that we should, as we live, we we should ask the question, what would Jesus do? And this is a great question to ask. We should try to live out Jesus's heart for people and for God and live a life that reflects his heart for the world. But if we're honest, sometimes it's difficult to know what Jesus would do in a particular situation. And honestly, we can use the, the difficulty of translating Jesus's actions in his culture into our culture. We can use that difficulty to justify continuing to do what ultimately we want in the end. How am I supposed to know what Jesus would have done with my 21st century problems? But what is so powerful about the passage we're looking at today is that Jesus strips all of those excuses away. He says, you don't need to translate my actions from the culture that I was in to the culture that you face today. It's much, much simpler than that. You just ask, if I were in their shoes, what then would I want from me? Okay, fine. What would Jesus do is too difficult? He says, let's make it easier. Just put yourself in their shoes and then say, now what do you want? Put yourself in their shoes and ask, what then would I want from me? This seems like an easy and innocent question, but in reality, it has radical and revolutionary consequences in our lives. Now, why is that? Well, first, it's because it leaves no room in our lives for indifference. Now, in order to be able to explain this point, I'm going to have to do a little bit of an ancient Greek grammar lesson. Now, I promise to keep it quick, so stick with me for two minutes, and I promise I'll get to the point. So here's our ancient Greek grammar lesson for today. Just like English, Greek has three primary moods for its verbs. The most common mood is the indicative. Which just describes actions, like the statement, my son goes to school. The verb goes in that sentence is in the indicative mood. It's just describing what is happening. The second mood that either an English or a Greek verb could take on is the imperative, which is used for commands. If I told, if I said, son, go to school, go in that sentence is a command. And it would be in the imperative mood. But the third mood, both in Greek and English, is the subjunctive. And this is used for uh, commands that aren't actually true, right? Not lies, but things that maybe I wish were true or would only be true in certain conditions. If I said, I wish that my son would go to school, would go in that sentence is in the subjunctive because it's not happening now. He's not going to school. I just wish that he were. In Matthew chapter seven and verse 12 in this this Uh, passage that we just read. Jesus says, do to others what you would have them do to you. The key is that when Jesus uses the Greek verb fellow, which is translated would have or would want in that sentence, he uses the subjunctive mood, which is why most English translations say what you would have them do to you. He's not saying that we should do for others the same thing that we want them to do for us. That would be in the indicative mood. He's saying that we should do for others what we would want them to do for us if we were in the situation that they are in. Now, this is a crucial difference because it deprives us of the ability to justify our indifference to the needs of others. For many of us, it's easy to treat others the way that we would want to be treated. I'll treat you the way that I want you to treat me, which is to leave me alone. We'll say, I've got my life worked out the way that I want it. That means I don't want anything from anyone, and I don't owe anything to anyone. Of course, as people who are logged in to view a Sunday service on a Sunday morning when church isn't even happening because of COVID, we know better than to say that with our words. But we say that in the way that we spend our time, and we say that in the way that we spend our money. Consumed by all the activities of our lives, we get so consumed that we're too busy to mentor a younger brother or sister in the faith. We're too busy to serve the poor in our neighborhoods, too busy to study the Bible with a friend who has questions about his faith. We'll spend money on our own priorities. But there's just never much left to do do things for the poor or for the church. Oh, of course, we want to make time for these things. We want to have money for these causes. But it never seems to happen. Because in the end, we don't really need them. And so we don't really owe them anything either. But the fact is that when, when this is our attitude, we're asking the wrong question. Jesus didn't say to give to others what I actually want from them. He's saying we need to ask, if I were in their shoes, then what would I want from me? In Jesus's paradigm, I could meet someone and not want anything at all from them, but that doesn't excuse me from my obligation, I must first put myself in their shoes to try to see the world through their eyes and say, if that were me, if I lived that person's life, what then would I want from the person living my life? It could very well be that there are people that we meet that we don't want anything from them, but they would want an awful lot from us. I think if you try this, what you'll quickly realize is that there are many people that you come across where if you put yourself in their shoes, you would have no idea what they want. And that's because there are many people that we don't know enough about their life to be able to even understand the position that they are in. But I think in that case, Jesus' call is not to just forget about it, it's then to get familiar enough with their lives that we actually can understand how best to meet their needs, to get familiar with their hopes and fears and pains so that we can put ourselves in their shoes and know what we can do to help. But this is what makes it scary. We have an unlimited obligation to the world around us. Christians can't just... Live and let live. We can't stick our heads in the sand and go about our merry and comfortable lives while the world suffers around us. Living in God's kingdom means doing the work to become intimately familiar with the suffering of the world. Isn't that what Jesus did time after time? We shouldn't be surprised that he asks us to do the same. You know, I felt personally challenged in this area in the last year in the area of racial injustice. Now, I grew up in a quiet suburb outside Seattle, attended a private school, and my friend group was almost exclusively white and Asian. I don't have, I, I didn't have a single real friend who was black until I became a Christian and joined our church's campus ministry in central New Jersey. But even after developing those friendships, the the friendships that I'm eternally grateful for to this day, and even after marrying a black woman and learning so much from her and her family over the last 12 years, if I'm totally honest, I would have to say that until this year, my approach to racial issues in our country was characterized by indifference. I wouldn't have said that, of course, but in practice, I didn't care enough to research the history of segregation and its ongoing effects today. I didn't care enough to ask my brothers and sisters how I could support them. The way that I acted was that I didn't want any help with my race issues. And so I didn't prioritize helping my brothers and sisters with theirs. But what Jesus says is that it doesn't matter if the the problems that others are facing are affecting you personally. Your first step is to put yourselves in their shoes and only then to ask, what would I want from me? You know, the other area that I think can be a challenge for me, and when I look around the church, seems to be a challenge for all of us collectively, is an indifference for the spiritual state of the world. You know, we used to be a church that prided ourselves on seeing the world through spiritual eyes, on seeing clearly the lostness of the world around us and sacrificing whatever we could to help. At times, leaders tried to motivate people to make those sacrifices out of of bad motives. And I'm grateful that we've left those tactics behind us. But I worry that in leaving the unhealthy methods behind us, then in some ways we've also left the heart of Jesus behind us. Jesus says that everywhere we go, we need to ask, if I were in that person's shoes, what then would I want from the person in my shoes? And if we ask that question honestly, the first thing that a follower of Jesus will want to give to another person is the gospel a relationship with God that will change their lives for eternity. But often we don't because we are indifferent. I don't want spiritual help from that person, so why do I owe spiritual help to them? Jesus says there's no room for this kind of indifference in his kingdom. We have to fight our selfishness and complacency and desire for comfort and ask, if I were in their shoes, if I inhabited their life, what then would I want from me? You know, the second reason that this question is radical and can radically change our lives is because it leaves no room for resentment. You know, it's it's honestly almost crazy to, to realize that in Jesus' example, what we see, but also in this question, what we see is that our obligation to others remains intact regardless of how we are treated. Jesus' call to his followers is not just to do the work to be able to understand the needs of those around us. It's also to do the work to set aside our own feelings, our feelings of resentment, our desire for revenge, and to step back. Into the shoes even of those who hate us. Jesus says, Do to others what you would want them to do for you. He doesn't say this is only for your friends or for those who agree with you politically, for those who uphold their end of the bargain, for those who deserve it. God pours out His love in spite of who we are. This means that there is no place for resentment or bitterness or violence in the church. We will be mistreated by the world, by our families, by fellow Christians, by leaders even in the church, by those who should know better. And yet, in spite of that, our job is to go and love. Jesus calls us to be like Eliza Hamilton, mistreated by her husband and yet extending the hand of forgiveness. You know, the quality that defined the early church as different from the world was its conviction that they would treat others, friends, strangers, enemies even, not based on what they deserve, but based purely on what they need. That's the heart of God that they saw Jesus preach. That's the heart of God that they saw Jesus live. And it's the heart that they embodied, as one by one, they went out and loved and changed the world. You know, the world today still knows the power of that kind of love. I saw it in the theater that night. We've all seen it, time and again, as the most secular of people, the most God-hating of people, respond to a love that isn't deserved. That's the love that God calls us to bring. So Matthew seven, in verse 12, Jesus says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This means that everywhere we go, With everyone we meet, no matter how we are treated, we ask one simple question. If I were in their shoes, what then would I want from me? The thing is, Jesus didn't just say these words. He also lived them. He rejected indifference by leaving heaven, the the perfect existence with with the Father and the Spirit, all together in heaven, to come down into the mess of this world. And he rejected resentment when he didn't respond to our sins and our problems by uh, meeting out the punishment that we deserved, even though we deserved it. Instead, he took those things upon himself, took them to the cross, and paid for them with his own blood. We'll take communion now and remember Jesus' example. But as we remember it, let's also think, how can we also live his example in rejecting indifference, rejecting resentment, and going out to love and serve the world? Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to the earth. We thank you for his rejection of indifference in being willing to come and get his hands dirty to endure the the suffering and the difficulty of this world and for rejecting resentment and not treating us the way that we deserve to be treated because of our sins, but taking them on himself and paying for our sins with his blood. Father, as we take the the bread that represents his body and the juice that represents his blood, help us to live lives that are transformed by his sacrifice. And to go out into the world ready to to serve and love and to be the light that you call us to be. To ask, if I were in this other person's shoes, what then would I want from the person in my shoes? And to be ready to gladly and freely give it. Be with us, Father help us to live like you with your heart and your eyes. We love you. pray in Jesus' name.